I'm very relieved that um, Sue has handed me the notes because I think she's only just finished them. <laughs> All right. You okay over there in the cheap seats? Yeah? Okay. These are the more expensive posh seats. No? Are you okay? Something very interesting has happened. Um, I was asked to speak about about three months ago. So I had three months to worry and fret and stress. And I was told that I could preach anything I wanted. And so I picked a particular book and I picked a particular verse and I picked a particular theme. Unbeknown to me, next week we start a new part of the series and it's the same book, the same verse, the same theme. And I'm still a bit amazed by that. I wanted to just focus on one particular verse, in fact. It's, it's, it's from the Sermon on the Mount. You've all heard of that, I presume, Sermon on the Mount. I was picking up on this aspect of uh, mountaineering, for, hill climbing for beginners, isn't it? Let me get it right. Hill climbing for beginners. So I was trying to think, you know, something uh, uh, that connected with that. And of course, you've got the Sermon on the Mount, on the hill. So that, there's the connection with, with the um, series. But the verse that um, I wanted to major on was um, one that you'd be familiar with. It's, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Let me read it in a couple of other versions. In case you forget everything else I've said this morning, perhaps you'll remember the scriptures. Blessed are the poor. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. We haven't got it on the screen. You don't really need it. You know it by heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In the Message Bible it says, You are blessed when you're at the end of your rope, or the end of your tether. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. In a version, I don't often look it up, but I, I found this and I thought, this is interesting. In the easy version, would you believe there's a Bible version called the easy version? Happy are the people who know that they need God very much. The kingdom of heaven belongs to people like that. And that actually comes close to the essence of what I wanted to say this morning. If you want to go in really deep, go into the Amplified Bible, because there it says, blessed or spiritually prosperous, happy to be admired, are the poor in spirit, who are devoid of spiritual arrogance, those who regard themselves as insignificant, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, both now and forever. And each one of those versions picks up a little aspect of what I had in my mind. So over the last few weeks and months we've been hearing about, um, and appreciating mostly, what people have been sharing from the pulpit about getting fit to climb, having the right equipment, knowing where we're going, who best to climb with, all about pacing yourself and um, finishing the challenge and getting where you want to be. All these aspects of hill climbing or mountaineering that can be applied to the Christian life. Yes? Christian life uh, illustrated by those perspectives. 
Today we're going to look at something that Jesus did whilst up a mountain, as I mentioned, or at least while on a hillside. Part of the sermon message preached by Jesus that we have come to know as the Sermon on the Mount, which includes the section which we call the Beatitudes. Have you heard of that name, Beatitudes? Yes? Now, what does Beatitude mean? When a class of children was asked what Beatitudes means, one bright spark said, it's, the, it's what's going on in a bee's mind when he's planning to sting you. <laughs> Another one said, um, the Beatitude is a how high a bee can fly. And he said, no, that's wrong. That's the bee altitude. I thought that was quite good, that one. And of course, um, maybe, maybe it's our attitude when we tell someone to buzz off. It's a beatitude. I'll get them out of the way first, I thought, and then get on with the proper message. But Jesus used the term... Um, the, 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 the meaning of Beatitudes is apparently it's, it's linked up with Latin and the Latin Vulgate, which doesn't need to bother us this morning. But it's about the meaning, it's about an attitude of great joy, happiness. Because Jesus goes on very early in this whole section to talk about, he said, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. He uses that term eight times. He uses it more than eight times, but it, there are eight actual Beatitudes. I'm sure the theologians will be checking up on that, make sure I've got that right. But that's what I read in Google, so that must be right. There's eight Beatitudes. But the word blessed, as spoken by Jesus, is used much more times. He was telling the people gathered around him how to live a genuinely happy life. He said, you can be happy if... You can be happy if, and he said this over and over, and he gave them different aspects of what, how to live to be happy. Okay, let's just cover this other point. Where is it? Where, where was this mount? Does it, does it matter? Apparently, it's um, believed to be a hill in northern Israel on the Chorazim Plateau. Now, I found a photograph of the hill. And I've got it in front of me now. And do you know what? I didn't bother to put it up there because it is so boring. It's just a green hillside. And in the distance, there's the sea, which I presume is uh, the Sea of Galilee. It might be the Mediterranean. I'm not sure, to be honest. But it doesn't really matter. Um, it doesn't really matter where it is. They were out in the country. And presumably... Um, if you go there today, you can find it because they've put up a load of signs for tourists. I think Jenny's out there now. I wonder if she's going there. We don't know. But um, if you are at all um, interested and want to find out, there is a 20-minute video on YouTube that you can watch, and it will prove where the Mount of um, Sermon on the Mount is. Who's, who's up for that? No. Okay. Right. Well, we move on then. So it doesn't really matter where it was preached. Now, the thing I like to visualize when Jesus, um, you know, we've all watched Jesus films, haven't we? But I like to try and visualize what I'm reading. And um, it says here that um, 
Jesus was near this hillside or on this hillside and, and presumably they were at the bottom. And Jesus then, it says, when he saw the crowd, he went up the hillside. And we all know with hindsight that he was preparing then to speak to them. Now, if you want to speak to people outside, or inside for that matter, just as I'm on a platform here, you raise the speaker up. And in our culture, we stand up. And if you were outside, and like John Wesley used to go around the country preaching, he would sometimes sit on his horse and preach. And other times he would stand on a box or a, or a style even, and he would get as high as he could so he could project his voice so that the maximum number of people could hear. So you've got this image now, haven't you, of Jesus going up this hillside so that he can preach to the, the crowd. And what does he do? He sits down. How would you feel if I sat down now and started to carry on preaching? If I was like... It's odd, isn't it? But those of you who are a bit, bit theologians will know that in those days, the rabbi, when he spoke in the synagogue, would sit down to preach. He would talk. It was a, it was a little bit more intimate, I suppose, isn't it? He would come down almost to their level, as it were. And Jesus here was, was sorry, sorry, reflecting his position as the real, real rabbi. So we got this image now of Jesus up on this hillside, sitting down, and he starts to talk to the people. And he starts off with this first, so-called first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that has always slightly confused me. Because when you think about it, um, well, as you were growing up, were you encouraged to be poor in spirit? In church, are you encouraged to be poor in spirit? No, we're encouraged to keep our spirits up, aren't we? Yeah? Uh, <laughs> we're encouraged to keep our spirits up. We're encouraged, are we encouraged to be confident, to be strong, to be bold, uh, to stand up for yourselves. And there's Jesus saying, now, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, he goes on, a bit later on in his message, to say even more contradictory things that contradict what, what is human nature. He talks about um, turning the other cheek when someone strikes you. Did you know that? If you're a Christian, if you sit here this morning and you claim to be a Christian, if someone smacks you on the mouth, you're supposed to turn the other cheek and let them do the other one. Do you like that? I don't. I would, I would not like that. <laughs> As I was growing up, when I went home and said, oh, there's a bully in our school, and he's going around with his gang, and he's, he's bothering us, and he's beating people up and all that, my mum and dad said, well, stand up to him. Hit him back. Yeah? Did you, did you get some of that? Yeah. Most, most schools have a bully, don't they? Um, but Jesus said, don't. Don't fight back. He says, um, don't try and get your own back. He, in fact, he went on to say, um, if someone hurts you, pray for them and bless them. 
This Jesus is very contradictory, isn't he? He says things that are against human nature. Our human nature. So, what did he mean? Well, Jesus is, is actually, as I've already said, he, he goes against what is our natural instinct. Um, in 1969, a song came out. In those days, we had the hit parade. Who remembers the hit parade? The top 20 and all that. Yeah, we all aging ones remember that. <laughs> Apparently, it's still going, but it's all online now. I, I, I lost track of that. But in 1969, this song came out, and it was a song uh, that started nice and quietly, and it, and it had uh, very memorable words, and it built up gradually, and, and it, uh, by the end, it was a real sort of high crescendo song. This song stayed in the top 40 for six months. That means that every week in those days, you had to buy records, didn't you, for it to stay in the uh, thing, and it, everybody kept buying these records for this song, and it stayed in the top charts for 40, for six months. It was actually popularized by a guy called Elvis Presley, and of all people, someone called Sid Vicious brought out a version of it. You may or may not know that. You might feel that's irrelevant, and it probably is. But the song that stayed in the charts was sung by who? Anybody want to guess? Frank Sinatra, and it was... My way, of course it was. Who doesn't know my way? This is the song that's played at more funerals, or has been, I don't know about these days, I haven't been to a funeral for a while, but at the, uh, in a funeral they often play this song. I'll, I'll, I'm going to give you some of the words, because in case you've forgotten them, or for you younger ones who might not even know it, but he starts off, and now the end is here, and so I face the final curtain. That puts you in a funeral, doesn't it? The committal. My friend, I'll make it clear, I state my case in which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full, I've travelled each and every highway, and more, much more than this. I did it my way. It suggests the idea that the recently deceased, in the, in the case of the funeral, has been smart, he lived his life his own way, and, you know, uh, he's a bit of a rebel, perhaps. And, we, um, we, and he was independent and strong. He goes on to say, regrets, yes, I've had a few, but then again, two dimensions. I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, I, each careful step along the byways, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. And it's building now, the song's building. Do you all remember it? Now this is in your head, you'll be seeing this for the rest of the weekend. He says, do it your own way. Even if you get it wrong now and again, doesn't matter. Do it your own way. Do not show any remorse. Never regret your life. This is what the song is telling us. Next verse says, yes, but there were times when I knew that I'd bitten off more than I could chew. But through it all, where there was doubt, I ate it up and I spat it out. I faced it all. I stood tall. I did it my way. It's great words. Great encouraging words. Do it, you know, get on with yourself. Even when you know it's wrong, don't admit to it. That's what he's saying. Never give in. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has naught. 
not to say the things that he truly feels, and not the words of someone who kneels. Let the record show I took the blows and did it my way. This is someone um, who says, there is no one greater than yourself. I'm not going to kneel to anybody. Um, I'm going to be self-reliant. There's no God. There's no nothing greater. Don't be humble. Say what you like. Do it your way. Uh, say it like it like it uh, is. Take all the credit. That's the song that stayed in the charts for six months, and we all we loved it. Who would who would admit that at the time we all loved it? Come on, be honest. It's a great song. It's 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 almost inspirational, but it's the complete opposite of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the complete opposite of what the Bible teaches us. It denies God. It denies everything that is God-like and the way God wants us to live. It it expertly echoes the approach to our modern society. Do it your way. Don't do it any other way. Don't do it God's way. The Bible tells us to do it God's way. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus outlines all that. The Bible tells us to recognize our faults and our failings. It calls them sins. The Bible tells us that there's no way that we can ever be good enough in our own strength to get close to God. That's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us there's no way to earn a place in heaven when we die. The Bible tells us that we need to repent and show sorrow, regret, and so on. We need to realize our inherent inability to be perfect, and we need to turn to God for help and, and the ultimate salvation. The Bible tells us the way to heaven is not my way. It's God's way. So what did Jesus mean when he said, be poor in spirit? Now, let me tell you what he didn't mean, because sometimes when we look at the opposite, we get the better meaning. It's not about feeling down or depressed. Jesus is not encouraging us to be miserable or negative. There's no advantage at all in being a glass-half-empty type of person. The second part of this verse talks about inheriting the kingdom of heaven. So why should feeling down or plain depressed be anything to do with going to heaven or having a good life? Jesus is definitely not suggesting even that we become so depressed that we would sort of end it all to get to heaven quicker. That is not what he's saying. Jesus here is not talking about the Holy Spirit. And that's perhaps where my confusion has been in the past. Because when we hear about the Spirit in the Bible, we are normally thinking about the Holy Spirit, aren't we? He says, um, be poor in the Spirit. What well, he cannot possibly mean, be poor in the Holy Spirit, because that would be totally contradictory to everything else that Jesus teaches us. He's not talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And he's not talking about um, that in any way. It would be totally contrary. So let's not dwell on what he didn't mean. Let's think about what he did mean. To be poor in spirit. Jesus is actually talking about our own personal character and attitude to life. He is saying that to be truly happy, that is blessed, yeah, the beatitude, blessed, we need to be humble and recognize our own personal need for God to save us. When we are poor in spirit, we are not arrogant. We're not self-reliant. We're not singing my way, the way that Frank Sinatra sang it. We are poor in spirit when we are not arrogant, not self-reliant. When we are humble enough to be open and open ourselves to God's grace and mercy. Um, someone in my family who's very close to me has frequently said over the years, I'm not good enough to go to heaven. Because they're fixated on this idea that to get to, they sort of believe in God, and they believe there's a heaven, but they're fixated on this idea that if you live a good life, you can get to heaven. Like the weighing scales thing. If you do enough good, it will outweigh the bad. You may have, you know, you may be aware of that sort of thinking yourself. But we can never be good enough. You, you've probably seen sermons where someone's come with a bottle of ink and a glass of water and they say this, this glass of water is like God, it's pure, clean, and this is us. And if you mix that into the water, it, it all goes black, doesn't it? And that's an illustration of you cannot mix bad with good and end up clean, as it were. Everything becomes bad. It's physically, eternally impossible for God to be mixed with anything bad and evil. But that's the amazing grace of God, that he came himself, lived as a man, experienced everything that man experiences, was tempted just like we are, went through it all just like we do, and still stood, stood tall. And through it all, he did it his way. That's the way. God's way. When we are poor in spirit, we are not arrogant, not self-reliant. We realize the truth of us. And what's the truth about mankind? Have you ever watched the news? When we watch the news, I've, it's appalling, isn't it, what we read in the news. I mean, apart from Ukraine, which is the big thing, of course, dragging on terrible destruction and evil there. But the corruption, the... Um, the lying, the cheating, the stealing. He had the scandal of the MPs, expenses scandal a few years ago, and then, you know, it goes on and on. I'm not going to go into those details, but just look around the world. The killing, the lying, the cheating, the, the corruption, the oligarchs with their yachts while the people in Russia are, are struggling. The world, mankind, and womankind, if I want to be equal, is desperately wicked, as Jesus told us. But when we are poor in spirit, 
Jesus said, if you're poor in spirit and you allow the Holy Spirit, in effect, to, to come, then you're blessed. Because you've stopped being arrogant, stopped being self-reliant, and you've realized the true nature of what you are. We are what we are, aren't we? We are what we are. But if we give in to God, give in to Jesus, give in to the Holy Spirit's promptings, we, are, we can be transformed. We can be blessed. And we can be blessed now. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The ki this kingdom of heaven is not pie in the sky when you die. Kingdom of heaven is now. You could be in it now. Those of us who have already grasped this and are born again, as we put it, believe in Jesus, have trusted Jesus, and he is our Lord and Saviour, we have started eternity already. That's fabulous, isn't it? You're allowed, if you want, to smile or get excited or... Amen. Thank you, that's good. That's a good... That's, that's one. <laughs> it's fantastic. Our eternity has already started. How we live that eternity depends on how much we grasp. We, we, we never stop learning, do we? We go on grasping. And I'm not going to go into the other Beatitudes this morning because each one will take at least an hour. And I understand that next week Barry's preaching and he's going to go through them all. So next week bring sandwiches and a thermos because he's going to be um, at it for a while. Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you, we can grasp, and he was saying to the people there on the grass, if you are poor in spirit, you can be blessed because if you can get it, if you can grasp it, and then he went on to explain more and more, the kingdom of heaven is now. That's, that's amazing. Kingdom of heaven is now. What is the kingdom of heaven? It's, it's to be happy. The kingdom of heaven is a place of peace, joy, happiness, love, right here, now, on this earth, straight away. Those of us who can testify about accepting the Lord as your Savior, I mean, my testimony, as I've shared this many times, is the night I gave my heart to the Lord in the back row of a church, about the same size as this, the peace that came into my heart and mind straight away was amazing. I immediately entered the kingdom of God. Immediately. Fabulous. That didn't mean all my worries, stresses, and all the rest of it left me. Life still had to be lived. But I was now in the kingdom of heaven. I wasn't dead. I was very much alive. It's where we experience true happiness. Someone the other day bought a lottery ticket for the Euro Lottery and apparently yesterday they claimed the prize and became one of the richest people in the country, this country. I wonder, at the moment, they will probably be incredibly happy. Wouldn't we all? If I was to win that sort of money, I'd give some of it to you. <laughs> Not a lot. Not a lot, but I'll give, give you a bit. I'd be very happy. 
But when they look at the people who win these prizes, very often they find that a lot of them, not, not every one of them, but a lot of them end up blowing it, spending it on rubbish and wasting it and end up poor. Money and wealth is needed. We all need that, but it's not the thing that can guarantee happiness. So, how do you feel? How are you feeling right now? Are you feeling poor in spirit? Don't forget, I don't mean, are you feeling low? Are you feeling depressed? Are you feeling sort of cringingly humble and all that? No. How do you feel? Are you poor in spirit? Maybe, you see, the point, I suppose, is that we have to become poor in spirit in order to receive the gospel message. We have to be humble enough to accept that we need salvation. Once that comes, you then start to grow in the spirit. Grow in the capital S spirit. Grow in the Holy Spirit with Christ. So it, it, you have to be mature in how we grasp these thoughts. Those who are poor in spirit, Jesus said, are blessed. That means you're happy. You're not relying on your own strength anymore. We have a family situation, um, not our immediate family here in Harlow, but we have a family situation which is very stressful at the moment. And Sue and I desperately would like to share the gospel with that section of our family. But they, we're still praying about that. Because they've got no, no sense of God. Whereas when we have a problem, we can pray about it. And we can share with, with you, uh, as, as the family of God, and we know that you're praying for us. So we have that, we have that blessing. And they, they haven't got that. They are struggling on their own, by and large. So how do we come, become poor in spirit? Well, I've already said, the start is to humble yourself. If you, if you think you are good enough and you are doing enough good to get to heaven, you need to humble yourself. Because Paul, I think it was, wrote and said, all our righteousness is like filthy rags. It's not our righteousness. Doing good is great. You know, whatever you might be doing, helping your neighbor, uh, going to the food bank, you know, working in a refuge, whatever you might be doing, being kind to everybody around you, it's all good, that's all good. But that does not earn your way to heaven. You have to admit your need for God, that's the second one. Humble yourself, admit your need for God. We can't do it on our own. Pray for guidance. Come to God and say, please help me. He will he says, anybody who knocks the door, I'll come in. That's the, the, the picture we're given. And if you want to find out more, read the Bible. Just last week, or the week before, we were encouraged on that line. Read the Bible. It's, the, it's not called the good book for nothing. It's a good book. 66 good books, actually. Very good book. Read the Bible. Ask for wisdom. Ask for guidance. Spend time with others. It's very simple, really. Paul, again, encouraged us to not forsake gathering together. 
When you gather together, you encourage one another and help to um, support each other. We worship together. We learn together. We have jokes and make fun of each other. Some more than others. I'm not looking at anybody. But coming together. Because if you neglect something, it deteriorates. When I moved into our house, seven years ago now, we, we moved into Harlow, the house was fine, but the garden was terribly neglected. Shed was leaning over, another one was sinking in the ground. Very neglected. Now I've been having a go at it. The shed's leaning even further, the other one's fallen up. No. We need to maintain rather than neglect. So that's it. That's the message. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's about our attitude. Is it going to be my way or is it going to be God's way? That's the question we all need to ask. I've summed it up with this sort of paraphrase, if you like, of that verse. Very happy are those who do not rely on their own skills and ability to live now or to justify a place in heaven, but are humble and wise enough to listen to God, come before him, and truly grasp the fact that because we knew we could never be good enough to get into heaven, we can instead humbly accept and believe that when Jesus died on the cross, it was that that took away our sins and made us as if we had never sinned. And from then onwards, we are counted as righteous and are free to serve him in this life and go on to live eternally in his presence in what we call heaven. There it is. I wanted to mention, I don't know if I've put it in the right place now, but when it comes to taking communion, we are told to reflect on our own position before God and not to take it lightly. And that can be a little bit distorted by some who feel that unless they feel good enough they shouldn't take the communion. But that in a sense links to this because if we feel good enough about our own self um, how much are we relying on God? When, when I come to take communion, I'm reminded of my sin and my need for the blood of Christ to take away my sin. Because even though I'm a Christian, I've been a Christian for 50 odd years, I still sin. Yeah? Fail, you know, I'm still less than perfect. Sue doesn't think so, but it's true. Yeah. And so, when I come to communion, I realize that, and I then ask the Lord to forgive me and to cleanse me, and then I take the communion. If I'm coming and I'm thinking, oh, I'm good today, I've been good, I've, I've, you know, I've done this, that, and the other, I may not do it sort of consciously, but that's the sort of background thinking, and then think, okay, I can take communion today because I've been good enough. That's not quite how it works. I just thought I'd throw that in. Maybe I shouldn't have. I don't know. Is it my way, or is it God's way?
only you can answer the question. Father, we thank you for the fact that you never got caught out. When you created the world, you knew the end from the beginning. And you planned from the beginning to come and save your creation. We thank you that you came, you lived, and you died to take away our sins. We thank you, Lord, that it wasn't just about this pie in the sky when we die, but it was about giving us life now, giving us life and life more abundant, a life where we can share our failings with you, Lord, seek your help and receive that help. We thank you, Lord, that you're with us. We thank you, Lord, that you've enabled us to join the kingdom of heaven right now. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.